Japan by River Cruise is made possible thanks to those who donate to the show at japanbyrivercruise.com and due to the generosity of our corporate sponsors. Did you know that in Japan, on average, a brand new Let's Make International Friends social media group is formed every 24 minutes? Unfortunately, due to the inability to host public events and gatherings these days, those literally thousands of brand new groups are in desperate need of multicultural looking photos to accompany their awkwardly worded Facebook group descriptions and posts. That's where we come in. Here at FitsTheNarrative.com, we're currently recruiting models to help us recreate carefully crafted representations of all the weird socially stunted linguistically hobbled parties that these groups would otherwise be hosting. Help us reenact such classic international party snapshots as mildly uncomfortable exchange students at table with one very red-faced middle-aged Japanese man, and five white men trying to buy a drink for the same Japanese woman, or picture with black person. So, if you think you have the look to earn money as a foreign model, contact us at fitsthenarrative.com today. No Asians. Hello, Brian, and welcome back to Japan by River Cruise. I'm Bobby Judo. And I'm Ollie Horn. And joining us this week is Oscar Boyd. Oscar's a journalist for the Japan Times and also host of their Japan Times Deep Dive podcast. Funny backstory on that name, Deep Dive. It was actually inspired by the time he fell off of the Odaiba River Cruise. Thanks for being here, Oscar. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. On this week's show, recent record-breaking temperatures are putting a spotlight on climate change in Japan which is unfortunate because as stage comedians, we can assure you that temperature-wise, spotlights make things hotter. Plus, Ollie's got your weekly river cruise recommendation. Ollie? Yes, Bobby. This week's recommendation is a new dining experience river cruise that sails around Tokyo Bay called the Food That Might Kill You River Cruise. There are two courses to choose from. The first is a 45-minute quick course where you can sample delicacies such as sticky mochi, pufferfish sashimi, and Kyushu speciality raw chicken. The second is the four-year Ryugakuse course, that's the one that I've tried, which includes instant ramen, McDonald's breakfast, and all-you-can-drink beer four times a week. All that, plus later in the show, we'll share our list of the best River Cruise-related podcasts currently on air. You'll never guess who we pick for the top spot, unless you don't expect integrity, in which case you can probably skip that bit. But first, Soap Talk. Hey, Oscar, guess what I did at the weekend? What did you do at the weekend, Ollie? I hiked to a waterfall, and I thought of you. Why did you think of me? Because you were the hiking guy. In your brief time spent in Fukuoka, you had a blog on hiking. And I remember reading that blog thinking, what a waste that there are all these amazing hiking trails right on my doorstep, and I don't go. But I enjoyed... I thought you, I thought you were about to say uh, my, the blog was a waste. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you recovered swiftly what, there, so thank you. What a waste of this guy's time. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, you were um, you were in Kyushu for how long, Oscar? In total, about a year and a half. Um, yeah, and when I first moved but, to Fukuoka, I was looking out the window, and I didn't know that Japan was such a mountainous country. And I made it my goal to try and climb every summit I could see from my bedroom window in the in the brief time I was there. Yeah, and that's, if you haven't been to Japan, let alone Kyushu, that's a lot. 
Yeah, especially on a clear day. Like, it's much harder. I think I looked on a cloudy day the first time. I was like, yeah, that seems doable. If I did that, I would have done a loophole, which is I was on a ground floor apartment and I would have done it on a, on a dusky day. <laughs> well, I moved I moved to Kyushu from Florida. And Florida, the highest point of elevation is literally an intracoastal bridge. And so I am still kind of like caught off guard by being able to see mountains everywhere you look. It's crazy. Well, I mean, the UK, the highest point is Ben Nevis, which I think is about 1300 meters, but that's like a casual day hike in, in Japan. I didn't right. know that in the UK, everything is generally flat, but it does explain a lot about all these punchlines. Funny. It's very funny. Good stuff. So Oscar, did you manage to hike all of those mountains in the end? I don't think I did every single one, but it was my, uh, it was my break into journalism because the, the way I did it was I started by uh, um, reading all the hiking guides on Fukuoka Now. Mm. And once those were all used up, I decided just to keep going and then started writing my own guides. And so Fukuoka now is the local English magazine in Fukuoka. Mm -hmm. um, so I started sending them guides again, not affili affiliated with them at all, and just uh, started sending in guides and saying, would you like to publish these? And then that turned into a job. And then, then I ended up reporting on your fine comedy show, Mr. Ollie Horn. Um, it was one of the first interactions we had. Yeah. And you enjoyed it enough that you said something nice. It was great. It was very funny. And you never, interesting, never came back to a show in a non-professional capacity. <laughs> well, you've come uh, so far since. <laughs> and so since you've moved to Tokyo, presumably you've headed up Fuji once or twice. I've now done Fuji eight times. Oh, it's like, oh, what? a problem. Yeah. What? I know there's a bunch of different routes you can take, right? Have you done like a variety or you just keep going up and down? I've done it. <laughs> Way to belittle hiking Mount Fuji eight times. Well, can, I, can I explain why I asked it this way? I had to do a TV bit a little while back about uh, Sarakurayama. Did you climb Sarakurayama when you were here, Oscar? No, I don't think I have. It's a Kitakyushu one that's got like the, they call it like the million dollar night view, like this, the million mm. dollar nighttime cityscape. Um, but we did a piece for Asades, the local morning show, about this 72-year-old guy who climbs it every day. And his goal is to climb it uh, 10,000 times in his lifetime. And he's on like 7,000. And so wow. I went up with this guy who's the 72-year-old guy who climbs like what takes normally about an hour to hike this mountain. He does it in like 30 minutes. He half jogs up it. So we went up and down and it destroyed me at that pace. And after we'd come down, they were like, well, you know, he wants to do 10,000 times and he's 72 so if he's gonna get there before he dies he actually does it like three times a day so they made me go up again it must have been bad for you but i feel sorry for the poor crew oh because one of them didn't make it yeah i can imagine <laughs> they, they're carrying cameras <laughs> and my, my experience of, of regional television japanese crews is their skeletal that is to say the person that's driving the car is also the guy that's holding the boom mic that's yeah. also the guy that's buying lunch and also generally unfit men in their mid-40s that smoke a lot. The heavy smokers, yeah. So, Oscar, I'm assuming that you're not just going up and down the same route like this this guy in Sarakurayama. Are you doing the different the different paths? So, there are four main paths up Fuji. I've done two of them. But what I've changed each time is the way I've done it. Mm. So, the very first time I did it at like a normal climb with a few friends um, who were visiting from the UK, which was great. I like went up, did the whole sunrise thing. How long does it take to climb it? Um, about five ish hours hmm. um but then from there i i was scoping around when i was first thinking about moving to tokyo like what there was to do in tokyo and i found this organization called kanto adventures got in co contact with them and they were offering fuji ski trips and so they said you know what we'll do is we'll take you up you strap a pair of skis to your back on the way up and then you can ski down in winter 
You can ski down in winter makes it seem like you went in summer <laughs> and you had to wait. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Did it, it was all in May. May's the best month to do. It's, it's just about warm enough that it's, it's not too cold to climb, but there's still snow. Um, and then from there, I've started doing sea to summits. So this was the next challenge where I would cycle from the sea to the start of the hike and then from the hike, then hike from the hike to the top and then down again and yeah. do that. Um, and then did a winter version of that. And then we made actually did one climb for the podcast um, for Deep Dive. I believe that's why it was chosen the best podcast by the Japan Times. Um, <laughs> the but the yeah, criteria yeah, is how many times have you gone up Mount Fuji? Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to give you the title in that case. Do you yeah. think you'll go up again, yeah. Oscar? Well, every time I've come down, I've said no. I've said that's the last time. And every yeah. time. Why? Because it's, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no i mean it's great like fuji what i have to say about fuji is like it always throws you a bone there's always a moment in the climb where you're like this is so worth it whether it's yeah. the sunrise when i climbed it with my colleague we climbed it in miserable weather but then we got to the top and there was a rainbow mm. coming out of the crater so you always have something well if sea levels continue to rise then the top of fuji might be the only place that's still inhabitable yeah. in japan which is essentially what our news is about this week but before we would normally be taking a look at our mail at this point Regular listeners might have noticed we haven't read out mail for the last three weeks. We presumed that was because you'd stopped mes messaging us. It turns out that our contact form was broken. So apologies if you sent us in a mail. Please presume that if you would have sent a mail in, we wouldn't have read it anyway. I've heard Brian can't do capture. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we take a look at the news? Bobby Judah, what's in the news this week? It is hot. It's hot everywhere. Record-breaking temperatures in Japan as well as overseas. Oscar, you've been covering this in great depth. Can you walk us through it a little bit? Great depth. I'm not sure about great depth, but it's been hot. It's been so hot. Um, the record-breaking temperature was in this week in Hamamatsu, Shizuoka Prefecture, and it was 41, 41.1 degrees centigrade. I've no idea what that is in Fahrenheit. Wow, 41.1. I don't know it exactly in Fahrenheit as well. I do know that the Japanese government considers that almost too hot to host the Summer Olympics. <laughs> they're just going to add a new category. I think they're just going to swap out judo for frying an egg on the bonnet of your car. <laughs> but it was also record-breaking temperatures. I think the hottest temperature ever on Earth was recorded in Death Valley this week at 54.4 degrees. Hottest temperature ever on Earth so far. So, so far. far. And this is, you know, the big news. This is, this is, I wanted to drag the conversation back to this this week because I started the year uh, doing a lot of reporting on the climate crisis and climate change and how it was affecting mm -hmm. Japan. And then coronavirus came along and swept all those good plans off, uh, off their feet and threw them in a bin somewhere. But it's, it is important. It's still happening. Greta Thunberg came out with a great piece today um, talking about how we're just wasting time with climate change. Um, in 2018, the IPCC put out a report saying we have 12 years basically to fix the situation and COVID's just wiped out six months. Uh, is this too heavy for your pod? Yeah, it is. So, so what you're saying is there's still, a, there's still a crisis. We thought that COVID was the crisis. We thought you could only have one at, one at a time and we only have 30 minutes a week to deal with them. We have, for the record, referenced it a handful of times. We did a whole lot of COVID and coronavirus-focused stuff, but every once in a while, as an aside, Ollie and I would kind of be like, and also, the planet is still dying, yeah. so there's that. And I think, I think podcasting is a very environmentally friendly medium. You know, you can't record with fans or air conditioning on. 
it's you know it's it's <laughs> energy not not intensive which explains the sweat dripping down my head my face right now but... so you're saying that the covid crisis wiped out what six months of our 12 years that we have left something like that um it's just been very hard to have any action going on this yeah. topic um the uk was supposed to host the cop 26 um climate summit this summer but that's been delayed to november next year and all those efforts you know they're just getting pushed back by the fact we have to deal with another yeah. very very real threat which is the coronavirus i'd actually seen a handful of people wondering in different venues whether or not the coronavirus and all of the lockdown and the and the stay-at-home time would have a positive effect on climate change uh, just in terms of, you know, less less air traffic, uh, less people commuting and things like that. Do you think there's any offset there? I think they've shown there will be some, but a very, very, very small amount. Um, obviously, there was a massive reduction in carbon emissions associated with everyone just staying put, you know, which is which is positive. But they I think a lot of reports are saying that they reckon it will reduce climate change by about or temperature rise by about 0.01 degrees C over the next five years. But it does seem like there's an opportunity here in that people's behaviours have changed and we've had now six months at least of corona and that's certainly long enough to form a habit. Mm. Why isn't there more discussion about habit forming f for the environmental good happening? Well, I think that's a really, really important point to raise. And like I, mm. I've launched into this with, you know, this we've lost six months of our 12 years and that sounds very hopeless. But I think the, the really good parallel between coronavirus and climate change is that they are both invisible threats that require collective action to solve. Yeah. And what we've right. seen with coronavirus right. is, you know, people, except for maybe the US, but <laughs> yeah, that's doing its own thing on climate change too. But people in a lot of countries around the world um, have really taken action to protect people, to reduce their exposure, to reduce the chance of you know, spreading it around the world to other people. But I would say there's one key difference, which is that with countries, each country is now essentially on lockdown. And so the extent to which your behavior affects others is limited to your own country. Whereas with climate change, the extent to which your behavior has an influence on your country is marginal compared to the extent to which it has an effect on the ozone right. layer, which right, is right. above everyone. And something which Bill Gates said this week uh, on an interview he did for The Economist was how one problem that America has with its attitude towards masks and vaccines is that it prizes individualism. And that has been a strength for America during the last 20 years of economic growth because that's led to prosperity for lots of people. Obviously, some people have been left behind. But the other side of that coin is give individuals too much agency. Uh, they might make decisions which might fuck future generations for 20 or 30 years yeah. uh, because that doesn't matter to them anymore. Do you think Japan has a shot of persuading its population to to get behind the climate crisis on an individual basis or... Is this not something which we should even worry about on an individual level? Is this still a, a big political country and country problem? A lot of the emphasis over recent years has been on the individual to, you know, cut your meat down, cut your travel down, insulate your home better, stuff like that. Like these mm. individual actions which are supposed to, you know, all come together to create this big cl climate action, um, climate positive action. But I think that kind of notion has been disproved recently and there's a real argument against that in that governments really need to take the lead. They need to be proving and showing their citizens what they should be doing. Um, one thing I, you know, I think you see with Japan is Japan is very slow to change, but then when, you know, when, whenever it flips over that kind of 
knife edge it flips very quickly and i think they do have an ability to build things very quickly build new infrastructure in particular and that does fill me with some hope that when whenever they do decide that this is going to be the climate moment they will really seize that some positive signs we've seen recently is that they've just declared they're going to shut down a hundred of the least efficient uh coal-fired power plants in japan by 2030 they're still going to keep a lot of the bigger more efficient ones which is going to you know basically only reduce that by 20 percent uh, the coal contribution by 20 percent but it is a step in the right direction and and if they can continue doing that, that that's great i like that you're hopeful about it and i would also like an opportunity to take that hope away okay please um, do. It's funny to me that they've singled out the the least efficient coal power plants because this says to me, in a sense, that it's not necessarily about doing something that's great for the environment. It's about doing something for their economic bottom line. For sure. I think that motivates people a lot more. And I think this is a global issue that, that I definitely suffer from. I think a lot of people suffer from. But the climate change issues are so overwhelming mm. and so terrifying that when you think about them, it's very easy to just shut down. Can I inject some hope back into the conversation? Because I think, yes, that's, I think that's what makes this moment different is that we have seen in response to the coronavirus that governments around the world are saying, we need to shore up our economies. We need to make sure people can live. We need to make sure people can eat as much as, you know, as, much as they can. Um, <laughs> Did you say can or want? Want, can. You know. <laughs> but, but coming back to the point, you know, we are seeing these massive stimulus packages. Um, Japan in May announced that it was going to spend $1.1 trillion in stimulus to combat mm. the pandemic in Japan. And, you know, other big trading blocks like the European Union, for example, they announced a, um, 750 billion euro measures to um, tr basically to help fund a green recovery. And I think that's what you've got to look at as like this moment where the hope comes from is that if you can tie those stimulus packages to green action, then this 2020 mm. might be the most miserable year we've ever had but it might also be you know, so far <laughs> i was gonna say it might be the nadir like it could be the bottom of that curve and from here on out you know yeah. things might improve on the climate they might not something which bobby said which resonated with me is this idea of helplessness that i really don't feel like i've got agency when i go out of my way to recycle a plastic bottle but i see that that's just been put in with the mixed with the mixed uh, garbage or uh, you know, if, if I try my best to turn my lights off, but find out that China's just opened up a new coal power station in the time it's taken me to get out my bed and turn those lights off. Yeah. But that's coming, that's coming back to this argument of like the, the owner shouldn't just be on the individual. You need, you need to, you need yeah. to cause action on, on a bigger scale. But all of the emissions which happen in the world are as a result of, of some kind of, they all stem back to some kind of money being made somewhere. Right. And, and I guess what these stimulus packages are doing is saying, well, current market forces are tending to non-environmentally sustainable practices. Therefore, we need to somehow interfere with the market and make sure that people can still you know, pr produce money for their shareholders and still do business, but do so in a way that, that isn't damaging the planet. I see it like the idea of masks in America. As you know, I talked to my family back home. There are people who are staying inside. There are people who are enforcing their own lockdown, but it's only about half of Americans. And and you know, lockdown doesn't work if only half of the country is doing it. And I see climate change the same way. Like we can take individual steps and individual governments can take individual steps. But bottom line for me is if the US and China aren't going to take those steps with us, then the other half of the country, the other half of the world is is still screwed. Yeah, I, I think one of the really hard things and that I've wrestled with in, living in Japan as well is that um, 
none bobby you're not a citizen right and uh, ollie you're stuck in malaysia so you're clearly not a citizen um and so none of us can vote um and that does make it harder but one of the most inspiring moments i had mm. you know thinking about this because I, you know, I often have these negative thoughts is is seeing the climate marches in tokyo uh last autumn um and again on our podcast i managed to sit down with a couple of the interview uh, a couple of the organizers of um those marches and you know you've got a load of like kids mm. you know like 18 year olds who are screaming yeah. their lungs out to try and be heard on this issue emitting a whole lot of carbon dioxide <laughs> <laughs> um but you know things take time to feed up but having that pressure on the streets having you know three thousand odd people marching around tokyo and trying to make their voices heard on the on the issue is really important and a lot of the big japanese newspapers were covering it on their front page the next day so yeah, yeah, it can feel hopeless. Yeah, on an individual level, it's it's often really tough, but things are moving in the right direction. It's really what we're asking for, that our choice matrix as consumers changes. So it's just no longer possible that we choose between the environmentally friendly uh, reusable bottle or the plastic bottle, or we no longer choose between some fast fashion that's gone from Vietnam to Thailand uh, to Bangladesh and then back to back to a store. That actually these choices are just taken away from us and we no longer are part of the problem because we can only choose options which aren't detrimental to the planet. I mean, the, I think the easiest way, like when you go down this like, line of, um, you know, should we limit what people can consume? I think that's where, it get, you know, you're going to run into trouble with people as well because they're going to go, oh, the government is being a nanny state. They're stepping in. They're limiting what I can consume. But, but, that, but that does already happen. I, no, I agree. It already happens. Like, you, know, you, you can't buy cheese from certain countries if you haven't got a trade deal with sure. them. Right. So, you know, like just on a practical level, we already have a choice matrix that is to a greater or lesser extent controlled by a government. Absolutely. And, you know, people in America are required to wear seatbelts and still they have a problem with masks. So, you know, you always have these these things, but people find ways to oppose it. But the thing that's you know, one of the least controversial is if you can change people's energy supplies um, or make it right. cheaper to live their life through like subsidies that also happen to be more environmentally positive, then that's where you get people buying into it. And I think that's what you need when you're talking about like building a coalition, bringing people together. Um, that's what you want. You want people buying into this idea of a more environmentally friendly world. So are you talking about things like subsidies for electric cars, subsidies for housing manufacturers to make sure that they're insulating properly, that kind of thing? Absolutely. I think insulation is one of those things that it's astounded me since moving to Japan, A, how cold houses are in winter and how hot they are in summer. And I talk to you know people about this and they say, well, you know, the reason why we don't have insulation is it's because it's so hot in summer and insulating would make it hotter. And you go, no, no, that's not how insulation works. Insulation is meant to separate you from the outside world and insulate yeah. you in your little coronavirus cage that we all now live in yeah. um, <laughs> if their logic were true then flasks would heat drinks no matter what you put inside <laughs> exactly <them. laughs> um and uh so so yeah so like doing stuff like making sure that insulation is cheap for everyone to have i think is a very quick way and, and japan's um emissions fell by 3.6 percent last year which is actually a, another step in the right direction um but a lot of the reason that was put down to is because it was a particularly warm winter. So people weren't using air conditioning as much. And so you're thinking if you can replicate that by all buildings having better insulation, therefore people don't use air conditioning all the time. I don't have to sit recording a podcast and my room's 37 degrees, same as the outside temperature. Um, you know, that that's one way that, you know, if, if you had a government scheme to subsidize insulation, that reduces energy consumption, reduces the production of energy, reduces the use of fossil fuels. 
and leads us to a more environmentally friendly world. You mentioned kind of the youth movement and uh, young people on the streets of Tokyo getting very passionate about these things. Do you see a lot of knowledge being shared? Do you see that youth movement being firmly committed to policy changes in a very real way? Or is it just more of a, a passion thing at the moment? No, they, they're really campaigning very hard. When we were talking about them, they were, um, the next day, uh, the guy I talked to, whose name isn't coming to the top of my head, but he was going down to the Tokyo Metropolitan Government to hand in a petition to ask Tokyo to declare a climate emergency. So they're really thinking about this in quite a big way. You know, it's not just we're going on the streets and having a, you know, a nice walkabout while shouting. You know, I think people really, really care about this. The, the most inspiring moment of last year, I think, for me, just seeing, like, walking through Shibuya Square, uh, Shibuya Crossing, um, hearing people caring so much about this issue, seeing the signs they brought out, seeing them shout so loudly. Um, it, was, it was absolutely phenomenal. I did see a moment on TV that I felt really clearly defined kind of this issue as a generational gap thing. It was a politician who was discussing uh, Greta Thunberg, and he was on TV as a commentator, and it was when she had given out her big speech at the UN where she called out all the world's leaders. And they asked this, this politician and commentator, who was a much older gentleman on TV, what he thought of it. And he kind of went, well, I, I really don't think it's fair of her to be doing this. I wish she had said something more along the lines of, you know, everyone individually should recycle and do what you can on an individual level. And all of the other oh personalities on the TV show were much younger and they all kind of just kind of took a step back and were like, yeah, you're not, you're not getting it. Not are quite you? there. Yeah. But that was the messaging, right? Like when, when climate change oh, became, for so long, for so long. became yeah. a thing, because that, that's an easy way to deflect the problem, isn't it? For, for big businesses and and uh, oil producers and and whatnot to just go well if only you lot were doing better absolutely whether or not they were right whether it is down to individuals or not demonstrably it hasn't worked so we need to do something else and something that we've discussed on the podcast before is whether we need to just look at whether some places are suitable for human inhabitation anymore right like whether we should just stop living in a place which needs to have an ac 24 7 but you can also look at Japan's unique geography as an opportunity, can't you? That you know, Japan is an, an island country that's surrounded by winds. You could get power from wind. Uh, onsens, you know, we, we we sit in onsens to heat us up. Why, why not? I don't know. Cook our food in them too. My ideas are perhaps flippant, but I think I've got a salient point, which Oscar might like to elaborate on. Absolutely. Yeah. Ge geothermal. Energy is or like the onsen. Every every time I say it in an onsen, I feel slightly guilty that it's not making energy because uh, when you look at what a power station is, is it's actually like really sav you know like savage technology basically. Um, in that you're heating water over a very hot thing to make steam to turn yeah. a turbine. Now geothermal energy is all about using that steam, and with mm -hmm you know japan japan is a volcanic nation it has the ability to create that steam not using coal not using nuclear rods but the the very crust it sits on um but i've also heard that the onsen lobby are very very against it and part of the reason uh, why it's been so hard to actually implement that that's so interesting because in the lobby of an onsen normally it's just lockers <laughs> if i can say a word in defense of onsens yes they might not be producing you know any kind of energy but they are also wasting tons of water yeah i mean don't get me wrong i absolutely love onsen and i would hate for them to disappear but um 
you know, I think geothermal currently makes up 0.2% of Japan's energy mix. And there are quite a lot of people out there saying, you know, it could be significantly, significantly higher. Looking at Japan, its geography is very important because its interior is all mountainous, which means all its big cities are mm. on the coast. And this is a really important fact is that Tokyo is going to be one of the most vulnerable cities and Osaka and Fukuoka and Kobe and all those huge cities on the coast are going to be so vulnerable yeah. if the, the waters rise by two meters. And, you know, most cities have uh, signposts all around them saying the height above sea level in case of tsunami. And so you go, right, if the sea's risen by two meters, I'm going to be underwater where I'm standing now. I mean, so you think they should change those signs to height above sea level in case the polar ice caps continue to melt? <laughs> what I really want Google to do, this is completely off tangent, but um, I think they should re-engineer re Google Maps for a day or a month or a year to show what your route, your commuting route would look like if sea level had risen by that much. I do, I do think it would have a big impact to be able to see how coastal cities and coastlines and countries all over the world would change based on, on climate change and the sea levels rising. And not just the sea levels rising, but the temperatures rising as well. Japan, geographically and culturally, could be unrecognizable in 20 years. Unrecognizable because the coastal cities will be gone and because you know Japan's most famous cultural achievement, having four seasons... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really want to point out here they have five like rainy season is a whole season <laughs> they don't have four I mean when we're talking about record-breaking temperatures you know we're this century we're on for three degree average temperature rise around the world it was 41.1 degrees in Hamamatsu this week imagine that's 44 and, that, and that's just you know that's we're talking average temperatures, wow. so the extremes are going to be even higher yeah think about the number of Atsui desnares yeah <laughs> that that's the real graph I'd like to see <laughs> Do you think maybe that's going to be the main cultural change rather than the culturally appropriate response to being the culturally correct response would be yes and what are you doing about it? <laughs> Hey, thanks very much for listening to this episode 49 of Japan by River Cruise. Thanks as ever to those who support the show at buymeacoffee.com. And thanks to you, yes, you, who's going to test our email send function by going to japanbyrivercruise.com and click send us a fax and see if we get it. And thank you to our guest this week, Oscar Boyd. Oscar, you've got a great podcast presence. You know, you could you could maybe do a little bit more with that if you put your mind to it. Well, thank you very much for having me today. And uh, if you haven't found this episode too somber, you can find more podcasts from me and the rest of the Japan Times team by searching deep dive from the japan times on all good podcast players see he acted like a pro he didn't take the bait he just did the plug why, why aren't we more like him <laughs> you said 15 seconds i, I didn't have to... <laughs> he he prioritized <laughs> his priorities in order <laughs> thanks very much and thank you for listening we will see you uh, next week